Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com support. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, it is time for another episode of Felony Friday right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Felony Friday is, of course, the show where each and every single Friday I focus on exposing injustice in this nation's broken criminal justice system. Felony Friday is one of three shows that we have here on the Lions of Liberty podcast feed. That's right, we have a bit of a variety show that we offer on this feed. Every Monday, we have our show hosted by Mark Clare, which is our flagship program, our longest-running program. And on that Monday show, Mark is going to interview leading minds in the liberty movement or host some roundtable discussions. Even within the show itself, it's a bit of a variety show. And every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land, hosted by Brian McWilliams. It's a wildly entertaining show, and it is a weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. On Felony Friday, we have a couple different formats that we'll use, and today's format has been a very, very popular format. I will be interviewing a former felon, a guy that has been through the criminal justice system, and he's now out. He's going to talk about his experience. The guy I'm interviewing is Jamel Nettles. And his story, it's going to have you on the edge of your seat. It is just an incredible, incredible story. This episode is going to be split into two parts because Jamel did such a phenomenal job taking us through each aspect of his story in great detail. He's a great storyteller. The second part will air next Friday, part one today. They'll be about 35, 40 minutes each. So in order to make sure you get next week's episode next Friday, as well as Monday's show with Mark, Wednesday's show with Brian, just subscribe. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast to make sure that you get all of these episodes. And also, I will be releasing this episode with Jamel Nettles in its totality to our Lions of Liberty Pride as exclusive content. So our Pride members, if you go to your Podbean uh, account there, your Podbean app, you can listen to this entire interview with Jamal Nettles in its totality right now. And if you want to join the Pride, you can go to lionsofliberty.com support and join for as little as $5 per month. This is the 87th episode of Felony Friday. You'll be able to find the show notes with links and notes to stuff that I'm going to be talking about with Jamel Nettles today at lionsofliberty.com FF87. Let's get this interview rolling. My guest today on Felony Friday is Jamel Nettles. Uh, The events that led to Jamel's arrest and his conviction are shocking and tragic. And we'll talk about that story. Uh, It was a break-in at his house where he was shot that actually led to him being arrested on a nonviolent drug crime. Now, Mr. Nettles is of Mobile, Alabama, and he was sentenced to 365 months in prison and four years supervised release. This was back in 2006, and that was for possession with intent to distribute crack cocaine, possession with intent to distribute cocaine, and simple possession of marijuana. Jamel served 11 years in prison, and he received clemency 
from President Obama on December 19th, 2017. He was released into a halfway house in January this year and then finally released from the halfway house on April 18th. So Jamil has quite a story to share and we're going to get into the details on it. So Jamil, welcome to Felony Friday. All right, man. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you coming on the show and I'm thankful to Malik King, who's been a past guest on this show, who introduced us and told me about your story. So I'm happy to give you the opportunity to share that story with the Felony Friday audience here on Felony Friday. We're all about exposing injustice in the criminal justice system. And I mean, I think you know, just from reading your story, I mean, this is a, a vast injustice. So I'm looking forward to giving you the opportunity to, to talk about it here today. But before we get too much into your story and talking about what exactly happened, um, if you could just maybe give my listeners a little background info on yourself and let us know where you grew up and and uh, and what, what your childhood was like. My name is Jamel Nettles. I'm 30 years old now. I'm from uh, an impoverished section of Mobile, Alabama called Maysville. If anyone's familiar with the downtown Mobile area, it's not far from downtown at all. Um, it's pretty much, to kind of paint you a picture of it, it's, it's fairly slummy. We have several different housing projects, which they have uh, closed down, a couple of them now. And But the housing that surround the housing projects on basically all four sides of the area that I'm from are, you know, a pretty slummy area. It's a, a drug-infested area, as like most impoverished areas. And uh, I am the product of two parents who have struggled with substance abuse uh, for a large part of their lives. My mother is now uh, sober and has been for a while, but my father still struggles with substance abuse to this day. And, you know, because of their substance abuse, I pretty much was raised by my environment to a large extent, you know, which my grandmother... And another one of my aunts were like uh, my other mothers, but pretty much my environment raised me because my parents were so much into their own thing. And as a result, as a result of that, you know, I found my role models and definitions of masculinity and and my identity as a as a black male within my environment, within the men in my environment, you know. And when you come from an impoverished area. You know, the people are pretty, they're pretty tough, you know, because they go through a lot of hard times. So, and they, they adjust to, to, uh, to the environment as best they can. And as you, as an, as a child, you're very impressionable. You're a young sponge, you know, searching for your identity, searching for your way. And you, and you pretty much grow and into, into whatever you're around. Um, and that, and as many, as many types of people that you're around. But the majority of the people fit a certain mold, you know, and that's basic. People just basically trying to survive from day to day. But the problem is survival is by any means necessary. So, you know, my I, I, I describe it this way, like some people come from a music culture where they're surrounded by musical talent and and music and they know the history of music. And some people come from a sports culture where they know sports and their dads and uncles all played sports and they played sports since they were a little kid. Some people come from a, 
a, church, a religious culture, whether it be Islam or Christianity or what have you. Well, I, I come from a drug culture. Like, I don't remember a time in my life when I haven't known about or seen drugs or drug addicts or the results of drugs, such as, you know, police raids, uh, ambulance late night, or um, the streets the streets being sectioned off for whatever reason. You know, everything that comes with poverty, which is, you know, crime. You know, this, this is the culture that I come from. So I was raised, now I won't say that I was intentionally like reared to be a criminal, you know, but it it was like by default, you know, like this is the way we live. This is the way we survive. And as I wrote about in my story that uh, the brother Malik King posted, I I remember as far back, my first introduction I remember directly with drugs was like when I was six years old, you know, because it was like you come outside and this is what you see, you know, like I remember my school teachers and stuff you know, being either drug addicts or their son is a, is a runner down the street for such and such. And this is, this is my everyday life. You know, my first introduction, I was like six years old. I started off handing off packages for people. Never knew what the packages were. Didn't really care what they were either because, you know, I, I got to, you know, the people would give me a good laugh and a pat on the back. You know, they were nice to me. And, and anyone who comes from an impoverished ghetto, anywhere in America know that the people are pretty mean and pretty, pretty rough, you know, cause they come from uh, such rough environment. You know, the way you live is rough. So pe the people are pretty rough, but people were nice to me, you know, and, and it, it's basically, Hey, hand this to such and such, you know, go down the street and pass this to such and such and, and get, get what he uh, give you and bring it back to me. Or uh, I'll count this money for me right quick. Uh, look, man, go and hide this under the house for me right quick. Uh, you know, somebody might scream to me in the, from the back of the police car, go and tell such and such. I said, uh, uh, get that stuff out of the closet, you know, stuff like that. Just I was I was reliable. I was always right there. I was smart enough to catch on, you know, what was going on, not w within the limits of a six year old, of course. But I was a little, I, I, you know, I was I wasn't into playing as much as I was until doing whatever I was told around, you know, the neighborhood. So it's like right here, literally, you walk out the door, here we are. You know, this, this is what's going on. It's, 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 uh, it's teeming. It's, it's like teeming with people. Now, mind you, this is the, the 90s we're talking about. So now the crack era, most people talk about, you know, the mid 80s and stuff. But that's more so in uh, bigger cities, Miami, Los Angeles, New York, you know, down here in the deeper south which I can't speak for too much ahead of, you know, that era because I was born in 87. But in the 90s, it's like when there was a real crack era down here, you know, and this was when, like, everybody was doing this. The streets were just teeming with people. It's not like that anymore. But um, anyways, that was my introduction. Pass this, run this, this and that, and I was reliable. People would give me a little money, and I liked that, or they'll let me ride with them in their nice cars and the loud music and, I remember, you know, when car phones were out and stuff and guys were wearing the silk colorful t-shirts and the thick hair and bone chains and stuff and the big beepers and, you know, it was cool, you know, because when I look around, man, it was like, it was very limited. Either you 
worked a job and complained all day about the job that you hated every day. You know, most of the guys, they work and they go sit up under the tree and drink beer and play dominoes and sit around and shoot the shit all day, which was kind of bumming to me. And then they were always complaining. You know, I always remember my mother always complaining about her life and just everybody was always complaining. This this group of people, the working class group of people, because I ain't never, there, there are no lawyers that live around here. There are no doctors that live around here. There are no policemen that live around here. There are no, um, what people would consider to be staples of the community or staples of society. You know, the, the pillars, the people who you look up to and people always talk about, well, why you, you know, a, a mentor and all this and that. Well, these, the, 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 the street people were my mentors. These, these are my mentors. These are who I have access to. I'm a kid. I don't have a car. So within walking distance, this is who I know, you know, and there, there were no, um, you know, people like that, that lived right around me, you know? So I didn't know anything about that. You know, my aspirations weren't to be, uh, an attorney because I had never met one unless I was going to court for, with somebody else, you know, my mom or somebody was going to court, you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. We're, I mean, we're, we're a product of, of our surroundings and from you, what you're telling me now, growing up, the most successful people and the people that actually seemed to enjoy what they did and got a little bit more freedom from what they did. They didn't have to maybe work a nine to five. Those are people selling drugs, right? So if you wanted to aspire to that, that was sort of the path that that you were led down. Is that fair to say? Yes, yes, sir. Because these seem like the people that were only people that were happy, the only people that were successful, that were having things. Either you worked a BS job and complained all the time, about the BS job that you hate and you still struggled and didn't have much, or you were a drug user, you know, trying to medicate and, you know, alter your reality from the life that you hated because of poverty, or you were a drug dealer. There was like the three, this is like the three routes. You work and you're unhappy and don't have nothing. You're a drug user and definitely don't want to be a drug user because you can clearly see that they're not winning, or you were a drug dealer. You know, this this is um, and like the factories in, in our area and stuff were shutting down. We got like uh, Mobile is a, a real blue collar area. It's a lot of shipyards, a lot of this and that. And so, you know, uh, it just a lot was going on. But the, the market that was readily there was the drug market. So, like I say, my introduction is just being a run at around six. And then I remember as I got older, you know, I'm, now I'm looking out for people and uh, when I got around 12, man, people would always, I had a reputation by then, you know, for doing this and that. And people would always ask me, Hey, where's such and such asking me, where's the, the weed man or the Coke man or, the, or the, the man with the best, uh, crack or whatever, you know, people always asking me and I'm always pointing them in this and that direction and passing this and that. I decided, man, the best thing for me to do was go ahead and handle my own business. You know, just to briefly, not to die, not to uh, go into another story, but like I remember what actually broke me down was because we were always pretty poor and we would have to go and live back and forth with other people sometimes. And, um, you know, we always lived in this uh, little apartment. And we never had a house. So uh, sometimes our utilities might get cut off or whatever. But at this time, my mom was working and, um, all of our utilities were on. I'm about 12 years old. I had gotten into girls by then, you know, a, a lot more, you know, the average 12 year old kind of stuff. And 
we had just moved out of my aunt's house back into our apartment. But at my aunt's house, it was a one uh, bathroom. And it was uh, several kids that lived in there and adults. There was a lot of us living in a three-bedroom, one-bathroom house. And all of the kids were around the same age. So all of us in the bathroom all the time. And it just was cramped. So we moved back to our apartment. And all of our utilities were on. I went to school. And there was this girl I liked. And I had gave her my phone number. So by the time I got home, I didn't know that our phone was cut off because it was on when I left. So I'm like, oh, man, you know how cruel kids are, you know, with the teasing. So I remember a man coming back into my classroom the next day, knowing I'm going to hear it. They had already been talking and laughing and joking and stuff. So uh, they had got quiet. Then I just hear somebody say, the number you have called has been disconnected, you know, and everybody erupted in laughter. You know what I'm saying? They had already been, you know, laughing about it. My phone was cut off. You know, and I liked it. this girl. It was embarrassing, and it made it piss me off, man. I remember that day. I made up in my mind, man. I wasn't gonna go through this anymore, you know. And, and especially when I when I don't I don't need to, you know. And uh, I had no idea that I was a natural entrepreneur. I had the entrepreneurial spirit. I learned that later when I got older. And uh, man, I went and I took ten dollars, <throat> went to the project down the street from where we lived, and. I bought what you call three for the 10, you know, which is basically three nickel bags of marijuana for $10. That's worth $15. I sold it for $15 and I kept just kept doing that and doing that. And before you know it, man, I had enough to buy me an ounce of marijuana, two ounces of marijuana. And, and there, there, there we go, man. I just, it just took off from there at 12 years old, stopped coming home. Um, at night I would come home at, 12 a.m., 1 a.m., especially once I got into harder drugs, you know, cocaine and crack cocaine and stuff like that, um, selling that. And uh, to this day, you know, me and my mother's never discussed, you know, there, there was never like when I came in, there was never a where, where you been, what you doing, or this or that. It's a you better get your ass up and go to school in the morning, you know, that that kind of stuff, you know. But I would. Uh, we never discussed what I was doing or something, but I would have money to help out and stuff. But what I really came to a head was as far as um, bringing the money into the household, my mother had gotten an income tax check and she wanted to get a house. She wanted to move out of the apartments that we were in. Now, where we were living, it was an apartment, but it was really like a project. Only reason why it wasn't a project is because the government didn't necessarily own it and it wasn't brick, but it's pretty much the projects. It was apartment complex. And she wanted to get out of there. We have been trying to get out of a long time. Had an income tax. She had a deal on a house. We were on section eight. We were on all kind of government assistance. But, uh, and the guy had, the landlord had agreed to get her the house. And then he had, she had given him X amount of money, whatever she had. And he came to our apartment and told her why she couldn't get the house and he needed extra money. And she just didn't have the extra money. It was like uh, $1,500. She just didn't have it. You know, and uh, man, my mother, now just, just re really quick to explain something about my mother. My mother, um, my mother is, function is a functionally literate. Like she can read a stop sign, but my mother struggles to read uh, a letter that I write her. She, like, she could write me, and it's not talking bad about my mother, I'm just telling you the truth, you know. She could write me a letter and you would think a third grader wrote it based off her penmanship and 
grammar usage and, you know, spelling is um, punctuation, you know. So she's, she doesn't have, you know, education, you know, the, the, the basic, you know. So what she was doing, she did a lot of domestic work, you know, babysitting people, kids and um, cleaning up people's houses and cleaning motel rooms and stuff. And where I'm from, man, um, just to be all the way real with you, uh, racism is, is very alive and well and it's very strong. You know, like um, we're, we're Mobile is a very segregated city. Now, of course, you see people mingle, don't get me wrong, but the economics and the politics are in such a headlock by whites only or people who want to do the bidding of whites only that the everything is um, very concentrated. Like, I don't remember ever going to school with a white person. I don't remember ever a white person ever living in, in my neighborhood, ever. The only time we saw white people were to buy drugs or they were uh, like city workers fixing the street or something or the police, you know, them, them the white people we saw, the, the police. So um, my mother always, that's another thing that turned my, my interpretation of working a job bad. My mother always worked these jobs for the white people and they would always, I didn't, I never liked the way that they treated her. But anyway, so this man wants to house this white, older white guy. And man, my mother literally got down on her knees crying, begging in front of this white man. And man, it, 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 I was furious. I could, I could literally kill him at this time. I'm, uh, uh, I was, I was pissed. I was 14 years old. Now, so I went into the back room. I, I snatched my mother off the floor and told her to wipe her face and stuff. And she's trying to fight against what I'm telling her. And I went in the back room. And I gave the man uh, $1,500. And then I, I can't remember, I gave him another $500 for something that was going on. So I wound up giving him $2,000. And my mama seen all that money in my hand, you know, and <clears throat> she immediately, her whole vibe changed. She got real bold and she wiped her face and slapped the money in his hand and cursed him out and told him to give her goddamn house and stuff like that, you know. And that made me so proud. It made me feel so good. And she hugged me and stuff. And because my mother um, was a very bad alcoholic, you know, and she would drink and she would cry all the time. And she would um, say very, very horrible things to me, like give me vicious tongue lashes, blame me for her life, blame me for why she didn't have this and why she couldn't do this and tell me I would never be shit like my dad. And, you know, you're just like your daddy. You ain't going to never be shit and get your stupid ass out of here. Like, I might come in happy about something and she might just, like, this is not real. Just smack the hell out of me, you know. And um, it say very mean things to me, which is used to hurt the shit out of me, you know. And uh, I, I just, I didn't understand it. But when I started making the money and our life began to change, you know, we get our house. I fully furnished the house. You know, we, we now for the first time, we don't have to walk to the damn laundromat and worry about nobody stealing our stuff and sweating the laundromat. I beg somebody to let us clean our clothes over their house. We got a washer and a dryer. You know, um, we have a den. We have a big screen television. You know, I went and got us a new car, which is this back then, Kia. The, the Kia was real cheap back then. So it wasn't like Alexis or nothing. I wasn't doing it like that, but. We had a Kia, little Kia, you know, just, you know, 
our, our standard of living had increased significantly. We weren't rich. I wasn't. I, I, I didn't have you know hundreds of thousands of dollars. But when you're when you're really poor, man, another five to seven thousand dollars change your damn life like you wouldn't believe. You know, so. Yeah, you had a you had a little bit little bit higher comfort level, a little bit more more room to maneuver. Yeah, that can really change things. Right. So the tongue lashing stopped from her. You know, now it wasn't blaming me for things and accusing me of things. It was praise. It was how much you love me and the hugs and the I'm proud of you and you really being the man around here and stuff like that, you know. But never, never, what are you doing? Where are you going? You need to make sure you do this and that. And this is not what, never that. That was never, so that was more confirmation for me that this is this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what a man does, you know. And uh, I remember around the same time, see, my dad had a thing where he stole from us real bad. Like back in the day, uh, food stamps used to be like paper, looked like Monopoly money. It was like real colorful. He would steal our food stamps or steal her little check money. My dad is on crack. And uh, when it when it turned to the card, this man was literally breaking our house because you couldn't steal the paper food stamps anymore. You had to have a card with a pin them and literally steal meat out the freezer, steal cereal from off the top of the refrigerator. You know, I remember this guy stole our whole Christmas one time and then got mad and jumped on me because I asked him about it. You know, this is when I was maybe 10. This is before I really got in the street. But uh, so... When all the, I remember now that I'm more prideful and I'm taking taking this whole man of the house thing real serious, I remember my dad, this is shortly after we moved in our house, he tried to come there and cut up his normal way and I jumped on him for the first time, you know. And after that, I'm, I'm really the protector and the provider of my home. There was nothing no one could tell me, nothing no one could tell me that what I was doing in my life was wrong. There's no way that what I'm doing is wrong when I'm producing such positive results. Now I have a little sister too at the time, you know, and she has whatever she needs. She's happy all the time. My mom's happy. You know, there's peace in my home. There's chaos in the streets, but it's always chaos in the streets before I got there. It's going to be always be chaos in the streets. But in my home, there was peace. There was no more chaos because we now had money. So there was nothing no one could tell me that what I was doing was wrong. I was 100% right in my eyes. And what I was doing was actually noble. Because now it had gotten to the point where I'm not just taking care of my family and my home. I'm taking care of my extended family, my aunts and cousins and, and stuff like that now. And I'm, you know, um, the, the, the point that I'm trying to make, I'm not justifying what I was doing. I'm trying to paint the mentality that I was in, you know. So make a long story short, around 16, I had my first son and, um, you know, from the time from 16 to the time I left the street, I was, you know, my mother had stopped working. She just, just stopped working because she didn't need to work anymore. Um, I had never told her to do that, but she just did. And I didn't have a problem with it because she had worked hard all her life. Um, but I was taking care of now from 16 to the time uh, of the shooting at my home, I, which is eight, when I was 18, I was taking care of me, my son, my son's mother, because she comes from a bad uh, family background as well, um, my mother, my little sister, and my uh, my younger cousin, who was three years younger than me, who also comes from, all of us come from poverty. All of us come from 
pretty fucked up situation. So I'm taking care of all six of us, you know, fully. Now, but I still go to school. I still make decent grades in school. I was always pretty smart in school, you know. Um, and I had a plan that I wanted to get my house in order, and I wanted to save a certain amount of money, and I wanted to go off to college, right? This, this was, this was actually my plan because I've always been fairly book smart. Um, but every time that I would get to the amount of money that I would say, this is how much I need, the money was coming so fast. It was just so fast. It was never easy. People say that the drug life is easy. It's not easy. It's very stressful. and It's very chaotic and it's very sad, but it's very fast. It's the speed. Yeah. I try to explain this to people that don't understand drug dealing is as much of an addiction as drug using because you get a, you get a rush. You know, I, I've read where um, Wall Street guys say that the rush for making sudden amounts of money quickly is like the, it's like the rush of cocaine. Well, I've never done cocaine, but I've, I've had the rush of the money. It's you, you become addicted to the rush that the money gives you. You become addicted to, um, you're beating the system. You're beating the man. You know, you, this is how you feel, though you're really not. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's a, it's a little bit different rush because, like you said, you're beating, you're beating more. It's more than just making the money. You're, you know, you're going up right. against the, the government making, you know, against this prohibition. Right. But I mean, it's, it's very similar to, I mean, I'm an entrepreneur. I have a couple entrepreneurial ventures. I mean, anytime you can make money and you yourself have been the one 100% responsible for making that money. I mean, there's no better feeling than that because nobody right. has given you permission to do that. Nobody has created that situation for you. You did it all yourself, and I'm sure, I'm sure it's the same feeling you got. Exactly, and many people in the street. This is what this is what they get. And then, not only that, you come, you you go from being a nothing in your environment to being praised. So you fall in love with the the, the adulation of it all, the the excitement. You know, you come through, man, you 16 years old or 14 years old, don't even have a driver license, and you didn't put, you know, $20,000 into a car. It's painted, shiny, and glossy when it hit the sun, and the big rims are shining, and the, the music is turned up. All the younger and older girls love you. You know, o- older people do whatever the hell you tell them to do because they, they're addicts. You know, wash my car, go run this errand for me, go and do this. You know, you go in and out of town whenever you want to, however you want to. You're meeting all kind of people. You're a goddamn celebrity. I mean, you're a local celebrity. You're a local celebrity, but you were just a local loser. You know, it's it's an it's an addiction, man. And people wonder how why do you keep doing this when you see this and that happening to other people, or that you've been through this and you've been through that. It's it's literally an addiction, man. And um. You know, you walk in somewhere, people know your name, they're walking up to you and they high-fiving you and hugging you versus it used to be you walking somewhere, people frowning at you. Man, what the fuck you want up? Don't come around here with that. You know what I'm saying? It, it's, it's a completely different thing. You become, a, you become a celebrity, you know? And so it's hard to tell a young person or even an older person, no matter what they've been through, hey man, don't this and that. First of all, it's an addiction. Second of all, you have to have an alternate. You know, you, you take a man, he's 35 years old with three or four kids, and you go tell him work for $10 an hour, you know, and 
the cost of living is constantly going up and he can see no light at the end of the tunnel. But at the same time, you know, business, the, the foundation su- supply and demand, he knows the supply and demand, the demand is right around the corner, you know, and, and it, it, it's difficult to explain to somebody, wh- you know, why you don't this and that, this and that, when a lot of the jobs may be miles away and he doesn't have a car because he just got out of prison or he doesn't have a car because he tried to stop doing this and that for a while and he lost all his money, you know. It, it's, it's just it's difficult, man. You get trapped in a real cycle of poverty and hell. But uh, like I say, I was taking care of uh, all these people and I'm also taking care of aunts and helping uh, cousins because I have a large family and whom I love. You know, I've always been close-knit to my family. All of these people are now depending on me, you know. Their livelihood rests on my back, you know. So all of this, you know, and I've, I had gotten up to... I was in high school, man. I remember being in high school, sitting in my high school class. And the night before, I had just counted out $300,000, you know. And I'm, in, I'm a high school student. Now, de- depending on, you know, who you are, that's not a lot of money. Depending on what position you are in life, it's a whole lot of money, especially for a, a teenager, you know. Well, I think, I think no matter what, that's a whole lot of money. It's just if some people already have you know, that much money, you know, multiplied, you know, 10 times, then it's not going to seem like as much, right. but no, no matter what, that's yeah, $300,000 is a lot of money. All right. What, what ended up happening? Can you tell us a little bit about the break-in that occurred and how that ultimately led to you being arrested? Yes, sir. That's, that's what I was about to go into. So just trying to explain how I thought, you know, I was doing the right thing, you know, and, um, but at this time, though I had this money, and on November 21st, 2005, which I was 18 years old at the time, um, a home invasion occurred at my home. Now, I had moved my family away from uh, Maysville, where I, where I lived. My mother had moved. I had moved my mother away, and I had moved my uh, family, my son and family away to another neighborhood. And... I didn't sell drugs out of my house and I didn't, um, you know, people didn't like a lot of people didn't know where I lived, but I had put a lot of money into like uh, a couple of flashy cars and stuff with TVs and music and paint rims and stuff. So, um, if you looked hard enough, it wouldn't be that hard to find me because of the cars stick out so much. But anyways, um, one night, we're me and my 15 year old cousin are sitting in there playing a video game. My girlfriend's in the kitchen cooking and my little two year old son is just running around. And, uh, we heard a loud noise at the door. Now this is Christmas time. This is around Christmas time, December the 21st. And I just moved into a new house. So my family members are popping up all the time. Wanting to see the new house and, um, you know, come spend time with us. We have family coming in from out of town because it's the holiday season. So we heard, a, we heard a loud noise in the front room. Boom! Now I had a really, really big mirror that I used to always be worried about falling. So the first thing came to my mind was my big mirror had failed. Let me run in here and make sure my baby didn't get hit or my baby didn't get cut by any glass. So when I run in there, the mirror's on the wall, and my girlfriend looked at me. I'm like, what is that? I thought it's somebody at the door. Now, I got a couple of uncles and little cousins. They like to play and knock all hard on the door like it's the police, playing stupid little games. So uh, I go to the door. I say, who is it? And somebody say, it's your Uncle Junior. Now I'm expecting uh, 
you know, family because people are popping up, not necessarily this uncle. But uh, so I get ready to open the door. And then I see men with masks on behind the door. So I immediately try to push, push the uh, force the door shut. And they kick the door and, and shove their shoulders into the door. And uh, three masked men run into my home. Okay, guys, that is a wrap of part one with my interview with Jamel Nettles. And I'm sorry to leave you hanging like that. If you want to hear the rest of Jamel's story right now, you can do that by joining the Lions Pride. And you can do that by going to lionsofliberty.com slash support. We have three levels where you can join the Pride at. 25, 10, and 5. You get access to our exclusive content at all of those levels. The $25 level, you're going to get some free t-shirts, a free koozie. You're going to get access to our Lions of Liberty store at cost. All the stuff sold there at cost. And you're also going to get a monthly conference call with us where you can chime in, give us ideas, shoot the shit, ask us questions. It's a great time. Really enjoying these conference calls, getting to know our $25 pride level. I think we're, we're calling that the Lions Guard level. And the $10 level, you don't get the call, but you pretty much get everything else. You get a free t-shirt, a free koozie. You get 20% off at the store. The $5 level, you don't get the free stuff. You still get the content, though. And all the levels get access to our secret Facebook group where you're going to get to chime in. And uh, sometimes we have some, some bonus segments with guests. I know we just had one with Julie Borowski when we had her on, and our Pride members had the opportunity to chime in with some, uh, some questions they wanted to ask Julie. So, guys, the only other thing I want to talk about, very important, I want to talk about Donor C. If you haven't downloaded the Donor C app, I want you to stop what you're doing and do that right now. I also want you to check out... Mark's interview. He just did an interview with Gret Glyer this week. It was published on Tuesday. I'll link to it on the show notes page. And Gret was talking about, Gret's the founder of Donor C, for those of you who don't know. Uh, he was talking about what they're doing to help the flood victims in Houston. Just It's just devastation in Houston, the amount of people that have been trapped. And there's a, a group of people who call themselves the Cajun Navy, who have gone in with their boats, their own personal boats, watercraft, and helped to rescue people who were trapped. And Gret came up with a project to help to fund, uh, to help to buy gas for, for these people who were going in and executing these rescues, um, saving these, saving people. The project was initially $5,000. That was funded in a couple days, tacked on another $2,500. I'm sure by the time this airs, that will be funded as well. So I'm not sure what the next project will be, but I'm sure that Brett will still be involved in the recovery in Houston and have some projects coming. So stay plugged in to Donor C. Stay plugged in to Walk the Walk, which is a Facebook group founded by Lions of Liberty, forum member, pride member, Clinton Rankin. Join that group on Facebook. This is a great way to have an impact, get updates on these projects. Gret uh, with Donor C, they posted a lot of great videos showing uh, these rescue missions in, in Houston. Just really, really incredible stuff and thankful for the people that have sacrificed themselves and given up their own time to save other people just it's it's tremendous and it's great to be able to help in a small way so guys i really want to encourage you to check that out and to donate 
that is all I have for today. Be sure to tune in next week for part two of Jamel Nettles' story. You're not going to want to miss that, guys. And that's all I got. So thanks for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. <laughs>